being able to experience different places and things and people easily because I feel like that's what infrastructure, good infrastructure, allows us to do. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. What do you think people don't know about what I do for my day job, which is infrastructure and the financing of infrastructure, Gwen? Okay. Do you so think I- they don't know how sexy it is? Do you think they don't know how, <laughs> how important it is? Do you think, do you, what, what do you think they don't know? I think that people don't know that they don't know that infrastructure is sexy. Okay, so I was so excited to have this conversation. Our guest is Liz Farmer. This is her third time on the show. She's a journalist. I loved this episode because when I think about infrastructure, I think about roads, I think about buildings, I think about the physical stuff. And the fact that we're having a debate over this infrastructure bill is not that we're debating over investing in infrastructure. We're debating over the definition of infrastructure. And that, I think, is interesting. That, for me, as a philosopher, somebody who likes definitions and to know what we're talking about and arguments, I wanted to know what is infrastructure. Because it seems to me the last infrastructure boom that we had that was, what, in the 1950s, We are almost trying to still use that definition, but infrastructure has radically changed. So when we talk about investing in infrastructure, we're talking about something that is different. And that's extremely relevant for what has actually happened. During this uh, episode that we recorded, uh, Congress was still debating the infrastructure bill. They did eventually pass it a couple of days after on August 10th. And then immediately thereafter, the Senate went on to pass the human infrastructure package, which is a $3.5 trillion budget resolution, which unlike the infrastructure bill with its focus on the rebuilding of roads, bridges, power supply, et cetera, money from the human infrastructure is focusing primarily on individuals and families. And it's like, oh, well, that is an infrastructure. Well, wait a minute. Listen to the episode, listen to the definitions of infrastructure and see why that individuals and families are a part of infrastructure. We will see how that plays out ultimately when dust settles in September, when Congress comes back and the money is allocated. And in any event, this is certainly a package of federal bills that will hopefully make all of our lives better on a going forward basis. And so that's why I'm excited about this episode. I'm excited about the educational component of it. I'm excited about the baits that we had during it. And I'm hoping that people realize about just how important of an individual Rudy Sallow is to their lives. And how sexy infrastructure is. Amen. (laughs) Okay, let's talk infrastructure. Liz Farmer, third time on the pod. Thank you so much for coming back on. This is my big question, which, I mean, the nerd in me, the philosopher in me, likes to narrow down ideas. In the public discourse between the two major political parties, there is an agreement on infrastructure needing to be built. What I think is interesting is that the difference here is that the Democrats are redefining infrastructure in order to broaden it, and the Republicans are keeping the old school notion of infrastructure, which means everyone agrees that there needs to be infrastructure, but we are not agreeing on what is the definition of infrastructure. So that is my biggest question. What is infrastructure? It's a good question. And it's funny because when this debate came up, I had this little memory bubble of a story I wrote three years ago, it was in 2018, about capital budgets and stay with me. (laughs) Yes, I wrote an entire magazine feature story on capital budgets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So capital budgets are like, you know, 
states and localities infrastructure budgets, right? But the reason that we wrote this story is because it was about budgets becoming more political because the wiggle room in which you could like insert your pet project in the regular operating budget was just becoming smaller and smaller. So people were trying to stick things in capital budgets that weren't traditional infrastructure. I wrote down a couple of examples from that story. And it's exactly the kind of things that Democrats in Washington are talking about now. So this was from 2018, but Delaware's capital budget included 15 million to improve education outcomes in five struggling schools. Ohio, which we know is a red state, had 300 million for critical health and human services, such as uh, mental health, women's health, and it was related to stemming the tide of the opioid epidemic in that state. And so those are just two examples, but this idea of what is infrastructure I think it depends on where your priorities are. And it has been expanding and expanding as infrastructure changes. You know, I mean, think about broadband. That used to be a nice to have. Now, I think everybody considers it vital infrastructure. Slow streets pilots that popped up a lot during the pandemic. And for listeners who may not be familiar, slow streets are blocks of one street corridors that are designated as a lower miles per hour, usually around 15 miles per hour. It's basically like driving through a very slow parking lot. It's meant to encourage more use of the streets for bikes and for pedestrians. A lot of those pilot programs popped up during the pandemic as a way to create more outdoor space. And now cities are looking to create those permanent in the city of San Francisco in its pilot program page says it is now considered slow streets as critical infrastructure. Mm. So I think it is constantly changing and it is in line with whatever the priorities are of the community that's looking at infrastructure. Yeah, I know that for engineering ethics, for instance, that just the way that the syllabus has changed over the years is that it used to be for engineers, you know, you learn about the Challenger Space Shuttle disaster, or here's a building that collapsed because it wasn't checked. So engineering ethics always had to do with don't kill anybody, you know, just check everything, don't make any mistakes. Now, the questions about engineering ethics are not nearly about the physical buildings themselves. They're questions about privacy. They're questions about the internet or genetic engineering, right? It's about how are these things impacting lives as opposed to the physical building. And I can't help but think that infrastructure, that the old school idea is just about a building as opposed to a flow for society to integrate, to get to work and to exist in a fashion that is efficient and helpful. What do you think? I don't know, Rudy, what do you think? I think you're pointing out something that is not to get too legal and not to get too nerdy here, but like what your original idea about engineering ethics and the limited box that you were in, basically don't kill anybody. If you were looking at our constitution, right? There's people that see our US constitution in an originalist way. Well, what in 1789, what did the drafters of the constitution mean? And that's basically it. They don't think there's any flexibility into what our constitution was. In this debate, I'm kind of seeing go back and forth amongst us as well as amongst the broader United States is, well, should the definition of infrastructure have some flexibility? Because the nature of our world is changing. The internet has changed 
the way we live, the way we work, everything that we're doing. And you cannot actually have the internet without infrastructure. What Liz was talking about with broadband, and broadband is one of the big winners, I believe, of this infrastructure bill, assuming the final infrastructure bill goes through. There are some provisions in there to finance broadband and expand broadband. I mean, you actually cannot have the internet without infrastructure because you need fiber optics. You need everything else that goes along the fiber optics, roads and, and, and everything to be connected. And so I agree with you. As our world is changing and as we are becoming more connected, you know, the definition of infrastructure must be more uh, flexible and expanded. I mean, if you, if you actually just type in infrastructure definition into Google, the traditional definitions are still somewhat limited. They are an underlying base or foundation, especially for an organization or system. Then it goes into the basic facilities, services, and installations needed for the functioning of a community or society, such as transportation and communication systems, water and power lines, and public institutions, including schools, post offices, and prisons. And then it's, an, once again, an underlying base or foundation, especially for an organization or system. I don't know why they have that in here. Uh, again, the expanded definition of infrastructure actually fits within there. School and education, while not thinking in the traditional way of, well, that's not a, that's not something you can necessarily touch, you know, education, you know, it's a building, but what you guys were talking about with the expanded definition is the underlying base of our society is our community. It's the people, it's society. So we have to think about it in an expanded way because we do all live together. That's my opinion. I just want to pinpoint it. The essential character trait of infrastructure is... Like all infrastructures have, all parts of infrastructure have this essential character. What is that essential character? An underlying base or foundation, especially for an organization or system. That's like the Underlying the base. Okay. Yeah. Think about it as a foundation, right? And then a part of that, another definition to go, okay, I understand that. That's a little lofty, but really what is it? It's the basic facilities, services, and installations needed for the functioning of a community or society, such as transportation and communication okay. systems, water and power lines, and public institutions, including schools, post offices, and prisons. I'd add hospitals to that because healthcare is a big part of it. So it's all about society. You know, society. The only way we're going to have a society is, is that if we actually have the infrastructure to interact amongst ourselves. I think a lot of people might say, "Why should I care about the infrastructure bill? Why should I care about?" The spending, you know, this gets billions and that gets billions, but this got cut and that got cut Well, because it's going to affect you. It will affect your daily life. It'll affect your schools. It'll affect the way you commute to work. It'll affect your children. It'll affect uh, your jobs. It'll affect your wallet. Our society functions on top of our infrastructure, I think, is the easiest and best way to think about it. That's what I think. So I'm yeah, starting to think when he's talking about like childcare and stuff like that. Or senior centers. That was, I think, that was part of what was supposed to be included. That is of the debate, which I think it's a is social really infrastructure component of it. There, that's okay. a, that, that's called social infrastructure, and there's two components right now. I think they're debate still debating the like the real like nuts and bolts infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? And then the, another part of Biden's package is the social infrastructure, okay. which is what you were saying: childcare and care for the elderly and, and healthcare. But the reality is you still need infrastructure. We need infrastructure to take care of our kids and our elderly and everything. Liz, thoughts, uh, disagreements, uh, embellishments? <laughs> no, um, it's interesting because even if you just limit it to, 
you know, the infrastructure that, that's likely to be uh, included in this first bill in Congress, all the stuff that you talked about, the, the non-social infrastructure, it's the foundation and it is the walls. It's almost everything that we do in our lives. We interact with infrastructure here before we even leave our homes, right? Because a lot of us rely on cable television or internet. Once we leave our property and step out on the sidewalk, that's infrastructure. The road is infrastructure. I mean, just so many pieces of how we go about our days, having nice schools, hospitals. I mean, there's just so much public building and input into our daily lives that we, we pretty much take for granted, right? And I think it's funny because infrastructure is really popular with politicians, but with the average person, yeah, they can say that they don't want potholes, they have very specifics that they want, but I'm not so sure the average person really appreciates how much the government pays for the stuff that we use every single day. And for state and local governments, they foot most of the bill. I mean, most of the stuff that's built here that's government funded is funded by state and local governments, and they pay about three quarters of the cost of infrastructure in the United States. It is truly everywhere. And that's just the stuff that we are traditionally thinking about. I mean, like Rudy said, the social aspect of it, I think, is really something that we have started to chew on, you know, with during the pandemic and afterwards, you know, considering equity and how much where we live, what we eat, what school we go to determines outcomes for the rest of our life and our health. I mean, all of those things are so interwoven that I think it's difficult to then just separate that stuff out and say, well, that's not the foundation for our lives because it truly is. So it's becoming a lot more complicated. That's my long-winded answer. <laughs> How does it work exactly? So when you say for local governments take care of things like the streets and whatnot, that all comes from the taxes, right? Property tax and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So if there's an area where the houses are run down or there's a lot of apartments and you don't have the same thing. So then does that mean that the local government is just without as much money as let's say the next town over? And then does the federal government come in to assist that? How does that work? Like I know, I know in Canada, for instance, the federal government funds the education. And that's why the idea is just because of what town you live in doesn't mean you get a better education from the public school. But here you're funded by the property tax, which means that if there's more expensive homes, then there's more tax, which means it can go more to the schools. So you can get a better education in one area or a better school. So Rudy, I can see you want to jump in. I, I really am just curious how this all works. Just not quite. California is a little weak. Yes, in general, exactly what you said is normally right. But California, once it passed Proposition 13 and we redid our school funding, just okay. because you live in a rich area doesn't mean that those schools actually get more property tax. They actually get less Okay. Uh, because they, they, I forgot this, and it's funny because I used to do, I mean, I do tons of school district finance, but there's a very specific word for school districts that are so rich that they have so much property tax that they actually get less from the state. I live in one of those cities and a lot of the rich cities do. So it's like this weird inequity as well. Actually, the poor school districts get way more funding per student than the rich school districts that's just a whole other debate that we're not going to even talk about okay. here. And by the way, remember, Canada is socialist. So we, you can't compare <laughs> us to Canada. We're, we're capitalists down here. And, you know, we pay for our own. And how do we pay for our own? You're absolutely right, Gwen. Typically, it's with property taxes. Yeah, just to add a little bit on to what you said. Uh, yeah, California does have something a little different. But there's this general principle that schools are funded in most places kind of half locally through local taxes and then the other half through the state. 
and there's a state funding form per student formula. Well, that gets, you know, in places that don't, like Rudy said, that don't get a lot of property taxes, they tend to get more funding per student from the state to balance that out. The really rich districts get, I mean, my parents live in one in California as well. It's in Napa Valley, go figure. And they get very, very little funding from the state. But who cares? Because they still have so much money per student because the housing price, you know, the value, housing values there are, are nuts. So they're still getting a ton more because home values are so much higher, you know, overall compared with students who live in a low income district who are getting, you know, where the state is putting more money into those schools, but it's still not even close to the overall money that uh, schools in wealthier districts have. So it's kind of like, you know, pieces of the pie. And that idea of the school trying to backfill, you know, um, in poorer districts is done all over the country, but it doesn't, it tends not to really change that overall picture of schools in wealthier districts, you know, just have more money to spend because, because of home values. And so it does perpetuate that inequity. I think, you know, as far as the social infrastructure, I mean, obviously as a new mom, it has just hit me so differently. This idea of Childcare is really, really different for me. I mean, I know I lived in Belgium for a little bit, and I know during my graduate studies, a couple of my girlfriends, they were pregnant and they had children while they were doing their graduate studies, and they could take their baby for healthcare, or I'm sorry, not healthcare, but for childcare. And then they could work on their PhD and it was all government funded and worked. And again, socialist, Rudy's like nodding his head. But I have been, now that I'm in the position of being a new mom, I can't help but think of when we talk about these social things that I think there's an underscoring idea that a woman's work or things that are deemed feminine are of less value. So that's why in terms of social infrastructure, police and firefighters are given a completely different view as opposed to teachers or childcare workers, which as we've learned from teaching that I mean, from the pandemic, the essential role that they do play in the safety and the, you know, creating this new society and this and that, but it's still knocked down or the idea of childcare so that women can do more work. And I hear this argument of like, it costs so much, it costs so much, it'll be so much taxes. But I keep thinking about all of the revenue that would be brought in by having more women in the workforce. And then also all of the employment it would do if you had these facilities, right? All of these people who would then be employed to be taking care of children, all of that is also more money. But I think it's because of the nature of the job that it has to do with children, that that is devalued or pushed to the side. Any thoughts or is that, is that too much? I, I just can't help but think that it has to do with the fact that it's deemed woman's work. I totally agree. I mean, tradi- tra- traditionally, it, wa- it, it was woman's work. But, yeah. uh, and so know, it doesn't these- go paid, right? Like it's just, yeah. why, would you, why would you pay for something like that? As opposed to, let's say, something that's more masculine, like police officers and firefighters, which, by the way, this is not disparaging that work. No. Very much for all of that and our, all our, of that our, help. Our, yeah. Our, Our capitalist system was built upon the notion that men would go to work and women would stay home. The women would stay home. They would watch the kids. They would help with the child rearing. They would do all that. That has changed over the past 30, 40, 50 years. Our government, our social infrastructure funding, our society, the things that we pay for has not caught up with reality is that in that women also work just as much, if not more than men in certain instances. And so 
I think one of the things that Biden's social infrastructure plan is hoping to address is that inequity because it's there. It's very obvious. Trust me. I have two kids. You know, thankfully, we're lucky enough to afford a nanny and pay for preschool. But many people are not in the same position. Otherwise, one of us would would couldn't wouldn't be able to work. It would actually be impossible. So yes, there's huge inequity. Something needs to change in order for us to advance as a society, in my opinion. I think that when it comes to the infrastructure, the stuff that everybody seems to agree on doesn't have that component. It seems like what we're disagreeing on is this expanded notion of things like childcare or senior care, reevaluating what what is the worth of someone's work. I mean, I know just for myself, I'm at a position where I cannot work and then be a full-time mom at the same time. It's just not happening. And so when I'm looking into sort childcare for somebody to help, I mean, the credentials are incredible. They're like, I have this degree. I have this experience. I know CPR. Um, I'm bilingual. You know, this is all extremely valuable. And I feel like it's, it has traditionally been devalued when it's like, this would be extremely helpful. And it also then allows for me to continue to work. But yeah, in order to be watching children, there are all of these credentials that are so important that take time, that are about safety, intelligence. Yeah, hopefully that'll get fixed. That's, that's what I think. I mean, that's, that's, that's my hope. I mean, really, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, it, it's very obvious to me, and I have friends that are teachers, and I have friends whose, whose wives stay home. It doesn't nearly get the dollar value that it deserves, in my opinion. Sorry, Liz, I didn't mean to jump in there. Yeah, no, I was just thinking, and it's not just childcare. It is a lot of traditionally female professions like nurses, in-home caregivers are predominantly women. And that is a profession that is just not earning what they deserve. I mean, they have to deal with so much stuff that nobody wants to deal with. And, you know, and compared with, I don't know, sanitation workers, predominantly men, they also deal with stuff that nobody wants to deal with, but they do get paid better, their union jobs. I mean, so it's just, it's beyond even just the childcare stuff. It's, it's the traditionally female professions. And again, it just perpetuates those inequities and, and it definitely targets women of color more. All of this stuff we saw in the pandemic. And just a note about the childcare thing too. I mean, one of the things that governments can do with their funds from the federal government from the American Rescue Plan is to give hazard pay grants to private employers for their employees who, are, who were essential workers during the pandemic. The only government I've heard of doing, you know, governments are doing that for their own workers, but the only government I've heard of doing that for private sector essential workers is Oxnard in SoCal, um, and it's doing it for grocery store workers. And today I got an email from someone who's a childcare worker and asked me about, because I've, I've been doing some writing on essential workers and hazard pay and asked me about, you know, her own particular situation. She lives in California and it's just devastating, like what she went through, what sh her family went through and, and nothing, nothing for it. So, and again, you thinking about during the pandemic, there's a lot of union support and stuff like that for grocery workers and hazard pay. I don't remember hearing much about childcare workers, you know, and support for hazard pay for them. It's kind of everywhere you look. I think after having lived in Belgium and seeing the infrastructure, taking trains everywhere, so like the actual, you know, like physical infrastructure type thing and social infrastructure, and I look at this idea of improving it in the United States, and I am so excited, and I might be so blinded because I've seen how it works, and it's something that I would really like. 
So what mm-hmm. I want to know is what are the arguments against it? Because I am so excited about <laughs> one point that I am not really getting the problem. All I hear is the problem is that it's too much money. And in my mind, I'm thinking, but you would get a return on this investment. It would employ so many people. So what am I missing? What is the argument against this other than it's too much money? What specifically, which argument, what, 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 what exactly, what, what specifically are you talking about? I'm, you know what I'm thinking? I'm backing up. I think that arguments against a bigger infrastructure bill, too much money and that the government shouldn't be doing this, that it should be private enterprise. Is that mm. along the lines of what's going on here? That that's that we're not a nanny state and so the government shouldn't be supplying all of this stuff? That well, should be private? Is that the it, argument? It's interesting. And I, I know, I'm sure Liz has some thoughts on this and I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit biased because I, you know, my quote unquote day job is financing all of that stuff that you're referring to. Uh, however, the United States has traditionally been where the state and local governments build and provide trains, roads, all of our infrastructure is done by the state and local government. I think what you're talking about is if you're hearing about arguments that this infrastructure bill is too bloated and mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to pay for it, that's because um, I know this will sound crazy because we just went through COVID-19 and the government literally printed money out of nowhere. But technically, mm-hmm. somebody's got to pay for this stuff. You got to look at a ledger and say, okay, this is going to cost $1 trillion. Where is the revenue? How are we going to pay these bills? And revenue you know, for government institutions comes from typically from taxes. And about four years ago, we had a major tax cut primarily to corporations. They went from a 35% tax rate to a 21% tax rate, which is huge, 14%. All corporations in the United States, which, by the way, no corporation was paying 35%. They were doing all kinds of things and working within the tax code to pay zero taxes. Still, corporations went from 35% down to 21%. So we actually, the government came up with less revenues. And so one of the arguments, really, I mean, the the real argument is, well, how are we going to pay for this? The only way you're going to be able to pay for it is to raise taxes. What politician wants to, a politician, a congressman who has to get elected every two years and a senator every six years, wants to be the one that says, I'm going to raise the taxes on everybody. Now, some people love to hear, I'm going to raise taxes on the rich. Some people like to hear, I'm going to raise taxes on the corporations. But the reality is to pay for a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill where everybody is happy, everybody's taxes has to be raised. And so you're not going to win a vote. That's it, period. Okay. So how, do you, how are you going to finance this stuff? What are you going to do? Are you, you going to give tax credits? Are you going to get private industry more involved? What are you going to do? That's what I've been arguing about for forever is how do we finance this stuff? Okay, One so the, you, would, yeah, you would have a politician who is voting for, if they vote yes for this and they have to go back to their constituents and explain, I just got all your taxes raised. We're, we're talking That's, in the perfect world if they pass the two, three trillion dollar thing where everybody in the world gets gets whatever they want. That's just not going to happen. It just, okay. it can't happen. Like numbers wise, it cannot happen. Um Yes. Going back to your point is one of the problems is, well, how do we pay for this type of stuff? So far, governments are mostly limited to taxes and certain user fees. And in certain instances, taxes are dropping. I've written a lot about this in Forbes is... Uh, you know, the gas tax, the primary way of funding infrastructure, particular road infrastructure throughout the United States and transit projects is through the gas tax. The gas tax has not been raised since 1994. It was set in 1994. It wasn't pegged to inflation. And what's been happening since 1994, fuel efficiency has gotten better. 
So people are actually buying less gas. There's been more electric vehicles out on the road. They don't buy gas, so they're not paying for gas. One of the revenue sources has been dropping like crazy. And that revenue source is one of the primary ways that we finance infrastructure. So I've raised the question, hey, it's great. I want more electric vehicles on the road. I want to fix our climate. I want to have a great future for my children with less wildfires and less climate change and sea level rise. Like, what do we, what do we do? Yes, let's go for electric vehicles. Here's a problem. How are we going to make sure that those electric vehicles actually pay their fair share for the roads that they're also using? Electric vehicles tend to be heavier than cars, so they technically damage the roads even more. And all I'm doing is raising the question, and a lot of people have been pissed at me. How dare you even say, how dare you even raise the fact that electric vehicles uh, are not paying their fair share? Well, because they're not, they're just not, mm-hmm. period. So let's come up with a way, let's pay by every mile that we travel, or let's come up with a let's, we as a society agree to a better way of paying for fair use. And uh, nobody wants to hear it is basically what it comes down to. Liz, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. Yeah, it's interesting that I didn't know electric vehicles weighed more. Um, that's that's the one thing I'm going to remember from this conversation. <laughs> they tend to. They tend to. Yes, they do tend to weigh more. Yes. So I'm reading through the proposed the Senate infrastructure bill. Um, and obviously all of this is not a guarantee. But what struck me is there's a number of funding for pilot programs in the bill that, you know, they're all designed around exactly what you said. Other funding sources for the Highway Trust Fund. There's, a, what is it called? A per vehicle per mile user fees pilot yeah, program in there. VMT, VMT. One on, yes. Um, but there's also another one, which they call, it's another user fee based infrastructure that they want to basically to have to run in through the states. And it would be like 50 million a year for four years. I, and so, and there's, I think another one that I just started reading about before we hopped on, but it, that to me was really, I mean, you can tell the thinking behind this is exactly what Ruby said. I mean, we cannot rely on the gas tax anymore to pay for this stuff. You know, one thing I've always said is who's really going to notice if you raise the gas tax a cent or two, you know, because it changes all the time, right? I don't really pay attention to how much I'm paying anymore at the pump. States have been raising the gas tax because the federal government hasn't, and states also have all the projects they need to pay for. But Rudy's right. It truly is like we've got to start weaning ourselves away from that because that's not going to be a sustainable funding source in the future. So as far as the spending, when we're talk- I'm really curious about the, the tax revenue. If you have, like, let's just say something like childcare, right? Like that social infrastructure, then you would have um, the taxes of the people then who are employed to take care of the children, to run it, to, to build it. And then also the taxes of the women that are able to work. So when we're saying like, oh, but you need all of this revenue in order to build it, can it be an investment? Because you will, by building it, then you'll eventually get more. Mm. Is that possible? Yes. The answer, in my opinion, the answer to your question is yes. Yes. If women are able to actually, you know, go get higher wage, higher wage jobs, guess who's the one of the beneficiaries of it? The government. Because if you collect, because if you get paid a higher wage, you pay more in taxes. So yes, I agree with you. That's the way to be thinking about this. It's an investment. So I, yes, I, yes, Gwen, that is definitely yeah, the right way. That's what I'm wondering when people are saying that, you know, the arguments against is that it's going to cost so much money. And I just keep thinking, but in the end, you would get more. Then my other question is, when was there an infrastructure boom in this country? And what were the taxes then? So when you say like it went from 35 down to 21%, so what was the tax rate at the time when we had the last biggest boom in infrastructure? 
Liz, you probably know this and you probably can correct me if I mess up. The easiest and quickest way to respond to that question is I believe in the 1950s in the post-Cold War era when Eisenhower was like, we're building all the federal highways. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we got it. One of the things that we've learned from World War II and if we're going to compete with the Soviet Union is this is a big country. We need to be interconnected and we need to get our army and our military from here to there like that. So the last really true big era of infrastructure development that everyone could point to is in the 1950s. And I can't tell you what the tax rate actually was in the 1950s, except that it was a hell of a lot more than what we're paying as individuals today. I think individuals back then were paying I think the top nominal tax rate could have been high as is 90%. I know that sounds crazy, yeah. but tax rates were psychotically high back in the 1950s. Yeah, it was that high, you know, and it's not like you're paying 90% of all of your income to the federal government. It's not how it works, but yeah, the top nominal tax rate was that high and, and it has not been that high ever since. And there's a lot of weird things about the 50s too. I mean, it was this crazy boom period. You had the baby boomers and then all of the economic momentum from that carried us through until about the end of the century. And then we've really started kind of pulling back. And it's just, you know, that's what happens when we have this huge population boom and all this productivity and all this government spending and all of these big social programs as well that came after the highway network. And so you know, and then we've just kind of pulled back since then. You know, the American Rescue Plan is a huge opportunity for state and local governments and citizens to make some investments in their own future. If the infrastructure bill comes after that, and then if, oh my gosh, if you get like a social infrastructure bill after that, you could see an equivalent in terms of, you know, economic productivity that you saw in the 1950s, you know, minus we have a lower birth rate, that's not going to change. But I mean, it, there is that evidence of you, you can basically fund economic growth that way. I'm excited. I just keep thinking, like, I just hope it goes through. I just see all the potential in the building and how many more businesses. I mean, I remember when there was that debate about, and it really made me think, um, when Amazon was going to build a place that it was somewhere in New York. And then there uh, was HQ2, just, oh, headquarters yeah. two. That's what, that's what it was, HQ2. Okay, but they weren't going to be paying taxes. And I thought, you know, so some of the <laughs> argument was, but they're going to employ so many people. But the thing is that I kept thinking, but if they're not paying any taxes, then they are reaping all of the benefits of what their taxes would go toward. Like all the people who would be working there would have been educated by a school that that money from Amazon could have paid for or for all the roads, all of that stuff. So it would actually be more beneficial. What is the logic of a company like Amazon not paying taxes? I'll let Liz, I'll let Liz. Man, why you give it to me? Uh, I think the logic, here's the logic, right? You lure them with tax credits. These big name companies, they can go to any city and they know that city is going to benefit from a tax base. Property values are going to raise up. All the workers are going to need homes. They're going to want homes closer to wherever that new institution is going to be. You know, I can see it from the corporation side. It's like, hey, you want us? There's a whole bunch of other places that want us and you know the benefit of getting us. You know your tax base is going to go up. You know your workers are going to move into here. What are you going to give to us? And so that's kind of like a little bit of the logic thinking there is any local government would definitely benefit from having an Amazon moving into there. And, you know, yeah, I mean, they could go wherever they want. They could go wherever they want to go. Now, I think one of the other arguments is, hey, with us not paying taxes for 10 years, it's not for forever. It's usually like five, 10, you know, it's delay in taxes or they have some kind of tax credits. We're able to build out faster. We're able to build out 
bigger. We're able to build out more. We're able to put more investment into the community that you will benefit from that. So it is a little bit of a give and take in my opinion. Okay. What kind of an impact yeah, would it have if companies like Amazon did start paying taxes? Is it negligible when it comes to a budget for the federal government or is it something that would be significant? Well, I mean, I think Amazon pays taxes. Are you referring to the fact that Jeff Bezos doesn't pay taxes? Oh, he doesn't? But he's just, what, did you just go to the moon and then came back with a cowboy hat? And he doesn't I think something taxes. like that. I, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on, on the, on the whole You know that thing. he thanked all the workers and people who bought stuff from Amazon to make his trip possible? It's like, cheers, dude. Great. But what are you, you going to do? Um, yeah. Uh, can you buy some this, common sense? Money cannot buy you common sense. Here, speaking of common sense. And since or this fashion is a, sense. Since this is a philosophy podcast, yeah, I actually sure. have a real legitimate philosophical question for the both of you. And I'd love you guys to weigh in on this because I am, I, I hate to even admit this, but I'm struggling with this. Buried in the infrastructure bill, at least as of a couple of days ago, is a requirement. I think in like five years, all car manufacturers have to have some kind of a mechanism in the car whereby in order to start the car, somebody has to breathe into the car and they have to be under 0.8 of alcohol. That's going to be a requirement. Every new car is going to have an alcohol tester in it in order to even drive it. I am curious. I mean, talk about personal responsibility versus government responsibility versus corporate responsibility. I want to hear some philosophical discussions about this very, very point. Cause I'll tell you, I'm still scratching my head. I'm still trying to gather information about it. So who wants to chime in first on this? Liz, do you want to go? I, I'm actually, I've got the infrastructure bill open. So I'm like control effing and trying to find this part. Cause I'm like, what? <laughs> but I tweeted it a couple days ago. There was a whole article. On okay, it. I'll go. I'll go back and look. But yeah, so I know there's some stuff in there on pilot programs on what's what's it called Vision Zero, minimizing pedestrian fatalities. And so part of me is like, and maybe Rudy can answer putting those devices in cars. I mean, I'm not like one of those people, but that at that level, making them then standard, it does seem a little big brother to me. Civilaries and all of that stuff. Not sure if that's even legal. The only thing I can think it relates to is there's some initiatives and, and language in the bill about reducing pedestrian and bicycle fatalities and vehicle collisions and stuff like that. So I'm assuming, it, Rudy, does it have to do with that or is it some, some add-in? I think it's just some add-in that a lot of people are like, wow. that. that is definitely going to be challenged legally and no way is that going through. I think it's a very interesting philosophical question about you know, uh, agency. That, Gwen, I, I'd love your thoughts on yeah. this. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hesitant. I mean, I can see the benefit of it, but I'm hesitant too. I'd almost prefer if they could do something to make sure you're not on your cell phone. <laughs> that seems like it would prevent a lot more, yeah. a lot more problems because I don't know if drinking and driving is as much of an issue as it was a decade ago because so many people use Uber and Lyft. It does feel awkward to try to prove before you get in your car that you're not a criminal, prove your innocence first. That's what it feels like to me. Well, think about this, pretty much 0.8, that's like one glass of wine within an hour, I think, depending mm -hmm. upon what your body weight is. And you know, I'm not saying you, I'm not saying me, I'm not saying Liz, I am sure there are many people out there that have had a glass of wine and then within a half an hour have gotten behind the wheel. So if cars in the mm -hmm. future will not start, 
it begs a lot of questions. Will that lead to more Ubers? Will that lead to more Lyfts? And you're absolutely right. There's that out there that proves that as Uber and Lyft expanded throughout the United States, drinking and driving arrests have dropped. So have deaths. Now, of course, people still drink and drive and they still kill people. So it's like, well, is one death okay? Well, I mean, you know, we still get 40,000 a year of people dying from regular driving. So like driving in and of itself is inherently dangerous. I thought it was a very interesting question. I'm like the both of you. I'm, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Okay. Obviously, it's a problem. Obviously, I'm against the drinking and driving. Obviously, I don't want anybody to be killed from it. But like, it raises a lot of questions about agency, big brother. Is this a slippery slope? That was interesting, Gwen. You said you'd rather have the government make it so we can't drive with our phones. So are you saying you would actually be like, okay, forget that. Why don't you change that and make it so there's a compartment where we have to lock our phones away while we're driving? Would you be okay with that? Oh, that's 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 interesting. Uh, well, I would say, I think with the test for alcohol, that it seems like if somebody has let's say been arrested or had a ticket, if it's like they were obliged to have that in the car for the next three years, something like that. That seems to make sense to me. But I think that Mm. before starting my own car, it almost feels like if I were to go to work and then they immediately gave me a drug test, like it it would just feel strange if there was no cause. Wouldn't that be part of like proving a a cause that it's not probable cause? Like getting in your car is not probable cause for that kind of a check. Unless you're at the airport, I mean. Getting in your car is not a right. See, you have to get a license for that. That's the thing. It's not one of those inalienable rights. You Uh, actually have to have uh, a license uh, to drive. It is regulated. See, that's the way you got to think about it. Uh, We are only allowed to drive because the government said we passed the test and that we're safe enough to be out there. Without a license, a valid, good license from a state government, you are actually not allowed to drive, period. That's that mindset shift of, wait, whoa, wait, wait, what's an actual right versus what's something that's, sober. you know, a license? And so you mm. have to think about it that way. That's interesting. Just like there's you have another, to pass the test, you have to prove that you're sober to drive. Yeah. And there's another aspect of this theoretical breathalyzer car thing, it, which is that, Gwen, you mentioned how relevant is it if you're, a lot of people are taking Uber or Lyft or whatever, but in rural areas, that doesn't exist. Cars are the only way to get around where I live. There's no bus. There's no nothing. Everybody drives a truck. You know, I'm like an anomaly with my little compact car. There's no other option unless you want to walk. And it's a long way to get to anywhere. (laughs) So that, you know, something like this uh, would have a disproportionate impact on, on places without good public transportation or that aren't viable for companies like Uber or Lyft. Is one of the reasons why we don't, like, it seems like a lot of hoops to be jumping through for the car that aren't there for guns is the reason because as opposed to what you said, Rudy, where driving is not a right, but that having a gun is and there aren't as many hoops. Bingo. Mm. Second Amendment. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you're saying this about the cars, I'm like, well, fuck. People want to get it. Well, like, can't we do all sorts of tests and see this? But then we, as soon as you said it's not your right to drive the car, but it is your right to have the gun, then I thought, oh, okay, that's the issue. That's exactly right. Oh, my God. Yeah, see? No, that's really hitting me because you're like, no, wait, the government can't do this because driving is not right. You have to have all of this stuff. But then when there's all these restrictions about guns, it's not the same thing. Who's to say, see, here's one of the the things that I've tried as a part of my own personal brand or something. I think talking about infrastructure is fascinating, even to the point of, what did I try to say a couple of years ago at one of my talks I gave? I was like, I want to make infrastructure sexy sexy to talk about, not actual sexy. I mean, infrastructure is not sexy, but something that's very interesting to talk about because it is so impactful. Just exactly like Liz said, 
living in a house, you're already subject to our infrastructure, the utility lines, the, your pipes that clean out your toilets, everything, your internet, all of that is infrastructure. Your life without infrastructure, you don't actually have your life. You cannot divorce the way you live, work, raise your children, anything from our infrastructure. So it should be talked about. We should care about it. We should talk about different ways of financing it. We should talk about more private company involvement, notwithstanding the fact that traditionally here in the United States, we have state and local government ownership of the vast majority of our enterprises versus elsewhere. And that's because of municipal bonds. And we're not going to talk about muni bonds because Liz and I will geek out and that'll really bore, bore people. But that the way we finance things is because of that. And that's just the way it is. And it's efficient and, and it's yeah. working great and et cetera. So I personally think this topic, you can talk about all different aspects of it. I truly hope one of the benefits of this debate that's going on in Congress, and I'm hoping that we have a citizenship that does care more about how our government works and where our tax dollars go. I hope we're able to talk about this stuff more often. I love talking about this stuff. I love having Liz on here. She's as passionate about this and she writes about it way better and way more than I do. But I want to ask you guys the question, how can we make this more sexy? Uh, sexy. Like how can we make infrastructure sexy? <laughs> well, Rudy, never cut about, your really? hair for one. I, know, I, I won't. Whenever, uh, whenever it, you talk about this, I just want you to run your hands through your hair. I, I would if I didn't have <laughs> headphones. But no, but really, I mean, you're around a lot of college students. I don't know if this topic comes up. Maybe you talk about it with engineers, but everybody, how can we make this more interesting for people? Is it bringing up topics like this uh, alcohol tester or how we affect lives? I have a feeling people only notice it when, because it's taken for granted that they only notice it when it's failing, when it's broken, um, because it's so taken for granted. And then the other thing I would suggest is travel. Americans don't travel very much, but mm -hmm. every American who has traveled, they then have a totally different appreciation for infrastructure. So I would say, you know, and encourage that, or even with my university students, like study abroad, because once, I mean, for me, once I got used to riding on trains everywhere, and then now that's just not really part of my life, it's changed. So once you see the possibility of what infrastructure can do, then I think that that changes things. That's what I would think about is encouraging travel and dialogue with people from other countries so that you get a sense of what is possible, not just stuck in your own way. What about you, Liz? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, throughout this conversation, I've been thinking about times I've gone to Europe and how easy it is to travel there, no matter, you know, you're landing at an airport, wherever, and you can take the train to a downtown location. And it's just I mean, yeah, it's hard as a tourist to figure it out. But the point is, you know, once you know the system, it's easy to get around. There's lots of options. There's lots of connection points. There's different lines. And once you learn the map, you're good to go. I mean, you do not need a car. Having a car is expensive. It's a pain in the butt. And, but not in America, you know, for the most part, unless you live in Manhattan or something. I mean, we love our cars. We love our cars. And it's so much easier to get around and cheaper via car than it is by train. I mean, I think about when we go up to visit our in-laws in Connecticut, it costs more and it takes longer generally to take the train, but we do it anyway, just so we don't have on the off chance that we, you know, we don't want to sit in traffic, you know, at least on a train, you can get up and move around. But I mean, the train that we take was nothing like the train that we took in Germany. And the train that we took in Germany took us like twice as far for literally half the price, right? And wow. it was very pretty. The bathrooms are clean. But here, it's like, if you don't want to drive, 
and you want to go any kind of distance, you know, across, I don't know, a couple of states, a couple of counties, that's expensive. And so we just don't make it worth it for people to do that unless you have no other choice. That's the real issue. And something I've been wondering about is fewer, fewer kids. I sound old. <laughs> young people, young adults, they, they are just not as interested in, in all the stuff, right? That maybe Gen X and older is, you know, having a car, buying a home, all of that stuff is happening later or maybe not at all. And it makes me wonder if people in their teens and, and early 20s now are going to be the, the driving force behind that taking away our reliance on cars and making it more about connectivity and being able to experience different places and things and people easily. Because I feel like that's what infrastructure, good infrastructure allows us to do. When we're in our cars, we're by ourselves and who cares about anybody else. But if we want to be more social and just get from point A to point B easily and simply and cheaply, that's what infrastructure can do. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. What do you think, think Rudy? I'm just going to keep trying to make this sexy and I, I just can't. <laughs> I've been working out. I've been trying to do a lot of things. Just nobody finds I've this stuff sexy. I've been working out. I have been to make infrastructure sexy. And by my infrastructure, if I make my yeah. infrastructure sexy, maybe. See, and my comedy is just going in the toilet too, obviously. I'm Because this is this is not funny. I'm just going to shut up now. Okay. None of that's going on the pod, right? That's that you were cutting off. You were it's cutting all off. all in the intro. <laughs> I feel like the, the infrastructure is such a boring, boring, horrible sounding word. It's like, it's the same issue I have with public finance. I mean, oh, put me to sleep st- immediately. But it's actually really interesting. It's just half of this is about marketing. The public finance slash infrastructure industry has a huge marketing problem that I, I <laughs> yes. swear to God, I've been trying to tackle it. That's why I do the Forbes stuff. That's why I talk about it on podcasts. I even tried to incorporate it a little bit when I did do some stand-up comedy or public speaking. It's hard. It's really hard to make this stuff sound fun and cool and as sexy as it should be, but I'm not going to give up. Mm-hmm. I'm still relatively young. I'm still relatively good looking. I'm going to make infrastructure <laughs> sexy, period. That's my goal. And if I fail, at least I could say I tried. You put it out. Anybody want to join me? You're welcome to join me. I'm looking for the sexy infrastructure <laughs> army. That's what I'm recruiting. Okay. It's not going to work. See? It's not going to work. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Liz, for joining the pod again. It's just such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad we could talk about this. I've been so curious about this subject. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for, for all your insight. Thanks, Liz. Great well, job thanks. on everything that you've been writing. I've been following it and reading it and educating myself. Thanks. So, oh my gosh, there's so much up. to write about now. I mean, there always is, but there's really a lot now. <laughs> just know you have, one, you have one major fanboy out there that okay. loves this stuff well, and we're trying to promote you any way possible that I can. I appreciate it, Rudy. And thanks for, for having me. This It's so much fun to talk to both of you. And our conversation always goes somewhere that's like unexpected and really fun for me. Good, good. <laughs> Have a good day. All right. Bye. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more about Liz Farmer's work. And I've also linked Rudy's work from Forbes.com. If you have any questions about this episode, or if you would like to get in touch about sponsoring an episode or advertising with us, you can email goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. We're also on Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod, and we're on Facebook, goodisinthedetailspod. Okay, I hope you're enjoying the rest of your summer, and until next time, bye.